last couple of weeks, I've spent talking about the biblical doctrine of uh, baptism. And we gave the Old Testament foundation of uh, in the Jewish ceremonial washings and also the proselyte baptism of Gentiles into Judaism. And then we uh, discussed, beginning last week, some of the more difficult texts concerning baptism that I think people misinterpret and uh, run into a lot of problems. One of the most prominent would be Acts 2.38, where it says, he who is baptized and is saved. And you have to believe and, and uh, be baptized in order to be saved. Repent, believe, and be baptized. And that is a stumbling block for, for many people. And they believe that somehow through this act of baptism that uh, they, they are born again. They are regenerated, and it's called baptismal regeneration. Now, they're not saying, some of them, that faith isn't necessary unless those who, uh, who believe in infant baptism, that's different. But they do make it clear that you have to be baptized to be saved. I looked at that grammatically, gave you a number of different arguments against that position. And then we looked at a very that difficult text in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, which speaks about baptism for the dead. And I told you all of the a number of different possible interpretations of that. It's certainly not a text that you're going to, you should build a doctrine upon. If you have more in, want more information about that, you can go back and listen to the message from last week, baptism for the dead. But it's not something that uh, is to be practiced. We don't even know exactly what the situation was back then. But certainly if if you can't, as a living person, if you don't need to be baptized to be saved, then there's no place for baptizing somebody who's already deceased. So what we want to do now is turn to the Gospel of John. And the scripture reading that you uh, have presented this morning, John chapter 3, hopefully you're, you're very familiar with that. The Gospel of John is a, is a gospel that we often point seekers to, or even new believers, to confirm their faith. It's a beautiful gospel, it, but it's been compared to a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant can swim. You got that right. Meaning that it is both simple and profound. John 3.16 is the pool in which a child can wade. Even a child can understand that. And perhaps John 3, particularly verses 4 and 5 here, the, the pool in which an elephant can swim. But what is really nice about the Gospel of John is that he gives us the purpose for which he wrote the book. He states it clearly. John 20 and verse 30. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, many miracles, which are not written in this book this gospel. But these, the ones that John recorded, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that upon believing, you may have life in his name. Believe and receive life. Faith before regeneration. Very clear from this text and many others. As a matter of fact, there is no text of Scripture that grammatically teaches regeneration before faith. 
John 20, 30, and 31, if you're there, is really John 3, 14, and 16 stated over again. John 3, 14 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with that story of the Israelites' rebellion in the wilderness, and God sent fiery serpents among them and as a judgment, and they were, they were dying. So Moses and Aaron, they, they took this serpent, uh, this, this uh, staff with a, with a fiery or image of a serpent on it. And the command was very simple. Look and live. And whoever looked upon that, that image of the serpent on the, on the staff, they lived. And that's beautiful, isn't it? What a picture of salvation. So as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He was lifted up on the cross, and he was lifted up from the earth in his resurrection. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It repeats what he just said. So look in John 3, verse 1. There is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, these miracles, that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, most surely I say to you, and he clarifies this a little bit more now, and then the rest of the chapter even does, does it more so. Unless his one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now in Christian history, this text has often been associated with baptism, the water being emblematic of Christian baptism. However, there has been a, a quite a range of different interpretations as to the meaning of born of water and the Spirit. So let's read on a little bit more. Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must, imperative, be born again. Every single person in this world must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Inquiring minds want to know, right? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the, the rabbi, the teacher of Israel? And do not know these things? 
Now, Nicodemus was thinking in terms of, of natural birth. That phrase, born of water, that Jesus spoke. Because he says to him, how, how can a man be born, in verse 4, when he is old, can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And that's why many people believe that the water referenced here in verse 5 is to physical birth, since human birth is preceded by the rupturing of the bag of amniotic fluid that surrounds the baby in the womb. Amniotic fluid surrounds the baby in the uterus, and it's water up until 20 weeks. After 20 weeks, it's the baby's urine mixed with water. But that's neither here nor there. But he was thinking in terms, I think, of this natural birth process. But the rebuke of Jesus in verse 10 indicates that the statement he made about water and spirit has an Old Testament foundation. And Nicodemus, a teacher of the Jews, should have known this. He should have made the connection, but he didn't. So while the idea of giving birth to an individual is not found in the Old Testament, God giving birth to an individual, Israel is viewed as God's what? Firstborn. Firstborn son. Exodus 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn. Israel is the apple of God's eyes. Israel is God's elect through whom the Messiah would come and the nation that he would use ultimately, to bring many people to Christ. So God gave the birth, birth to Israel, and in John's gospel, he makes it clear that those who receive Christ are born of God. They're born of God. John 1.11, look in John 1.11. It says he came to his own. Who is that? Israel. He came to his own people. And his own did not receive him. They rejected him, by and large. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who what? Believe. It's always, it's always the emphasis is on believing. Believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, and that's referring to their natural bloodline, lineage, nor of the will of the flesh, and that refers to bodily sexual desire, nor of the will of man, the Greek word is aner, and it's talking about a male who initiates procreation. So they're not born again through any natural means. By the grace of God, through faith, they're born of God. It's a supernatural birth from above, the impartation of life. The Net Bible, New English Translation, has this. Children not born by human parents or by human desire or by a husband's decision, but of God. And that third phrase means the same as the second one. So it's often used for a husband on air, resulting in the translation, or a husband's decision in the, the Net Bible. 
Now, we know that water was not only used for ritual cleansing in the Old Testament, many different purposes, but it also served as a, a metaphor for spiritual life, the water and life connection. Isaiah chapter 55, beautiful verse. You should memorize this one. Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So what God is offering here, the living water, the spiritual food that's necessary for life, spiritual life, is free. You can't buy it. Now, when Isaiah says that everyone who thirsts comes to the waters, he's obviously not talking about the satisfaction of physical thirst, but spiritual thirst. So he goes on in verse 2 of Isaiah 55. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and I hope we're all listening carefully to what the Lord is saying. Eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear, and come to me. Come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. Salvation is a free gift. Praise God. You don't have to work for it. But you must come to Christ to receive it. And that's why it says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. You know what that is? That's grace. That's grace. The water and the spirit have a strong connection in the Old Testament. We'll look at a couple of scriptures. But one commentator said this, Central to Old Testament theology is the concept of purification by water. The prophetic hope included an eschatological, that means end times, sprinkling with clean water that would cleanse both the land and the people in the land in Israel of an idolatrous spirit. So it is reasonable to assume that in water here we have a reference to the prophetic eschatological cleansing that Ezekiel spoke of accomplished through God's spirit. John makes this connection, actually. In, in uh, verse 6, Jesus makes the connection. So this would be the spiritual counterpart to the Levitical rites of purification. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. I will take you from among the nations, because remember they were scattered. They were scattered all over the world in 70 A.D., I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you back into your own land. The first time they'll come back into the land is in unbelief. And that's where the majority of Jews are today, in unbelief. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is yet future. And you will be clean, cleansed by water. 
but I will cleanse you from all the filthiness and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, this is spiritually speaking, the metaphor, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And here, here's the results of a new birth, which baptism signifies. I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. You will walk in newness of life. What, a, what an amazing thing. What an amazing time this will be. So here the Spirit is pictured as cleansing, cleansing from all filthiness, including idolatry, from all manner of sin. And that means it's equivalent of salvation. You're not saved unless you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. But it doesn't end there. It begins there. So cleansing from sin is the equivalent of salvation, but, but immediately at the moment of salvation, the process of sanctification begins. Sanctification is a theological term. It's not really complex. It, it just has to do with the idea of being separate from sin, separated from something. This is a sanctified tie, literally, in, in the theological use of the term. Because I set it apart from all other ties that I had to wear this one this morning for a particular purpose. So God wants you and me and every Christian to be separated from the world and all that is within it. All that is within it that is contrary to his purpose. So you have salvation, cleanse from all filthiness, and then he says, I'll put it, give you a new heart, and you'll walk in my statutes, my laws. You'll have an obedient heart. That's transformation. See, when, when, when God saves a person, his purpose is to make him like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a transformational process over the, per, over the entire life of a person. More and more. So we should expect to see Christians as they mature in Christ. And that was Paul's goal in preaching. He said to present every man perfect, which means mature in Christ. We should expect to see more and more of that transforming work of God upon the heart of a person. All things pass away. All things what? Become new. Not instantly, but there is a change. There is a change that takes place. Isaiah 44.3, God says, I will pour water on him who is thirsty. This is the idea again of spiritual cleansing. And floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. You know, the significance here, I think, of this parallelism is, is evident and it's strong. Where does the Spirit come from? Above. From above. 
So we can legitimately correlate being born of water cleansed and the spirit with being born from above. And really that there's no mystery to the word begotten or born again. It means born from above. Born of God, as he said. And the, the not only do you have a water spirit connection that Nicodemus should have seen and grasped in the Old Testament, but you have a water and spirit connection in the New Testament. John 4.10, the Samaritan woman, she's at the well offering a drink. And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you what? Living water. You know, in John's gospel, the word water, udor in the Greek is used 21 times. Outside of John 3, 5 here that we were looking at earlier, it is used of literal water 13 times and metaphorically seven times, seven times. And as a metaphor, living water represents life that is produced by the Spirit. John 7, 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, think of Isaiah 55 again, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. So again, you see the, the water and the spirit connection. Very clear here. The same water and spirit connection as in John chapter 3. We saw a couple weeks ago that the Old Testament prophet Joel predicted a time would come when God would pour out his spirit on all mankind. And now there was a tremendous pouring out of the spirit on Pentecost. But not all of Joel 2.38 was fulfilled on, on the day of Pentecost. But that pouring out of the Spirit that will come upon all mankind involves a transformation and includes a cleansing from sin and a spiritual renewal. So Joel says it will come to pass, verse 28, afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. On all flesh. God's going to do a marvelous work in the end times in reaching people with the gospel, the everlasting gospel that even angels will be preaching. So you have the word and spirit connection also. The written word of God together with the working of his Holy Spirit. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I'm glad we sang that song this morning about the word of God. The written word of God coupled with the working of the Holy Spirit is the means by which the new birth is accomplished. So how does God accomplish this miracle inside of a human being? It's through the operation of the Spirit and the Word of God. The entrance of God's Word brings light, brings light. The Spirit, Jesus says, when He comes into the world, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I'll tell you what, no person will come to Christ unless they're conscious of the awful sinfulness of their condition. And the Holy Spirit brings the word of God 
to bear upon them to bring that conviction, to show them that all we like sheep have what? Gone astray, every one. There is none good, no, not one. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But people can harden their heart just like the Pharaoh hardened his heart and and just not acknowledge it or maybe acknowledge it but not receive the remedy for it, the only remedy for it. So the Spirit is the means by which the new birth is accomplished through the Word. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. 1 Peter 1.23 Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. What's the incorruptible seed? He tells us through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. It's a pure word. The word of God is absolutely pure. James 1.18 says, of his own will, God, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his cre creatures, his creation. It's always the spirit using the word of God to bring about salvation. I love this verse, Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Does that sound like what? Ephesians 2. Not of works, lest any man should boast, right? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. And the reason is simple, because the Bible says all our righteousness is his filthy rags. You want to present your righteousness, your own inherent goodness to God? It says filthy rags. So, so Titus says here, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. I can't tell you how many times I've shared the gospel with people. And they were pinning their hopes, if they had any belief in the afterlife at all, or belief in God, on, on something good about them. Or some amount of good that they have done. Over and over, people have told me that. They fail to see the exceeding sinfulness of the human condition. There are times when all masks are off and we see it like what happened in Israel. Or even in our country. Not by works of righteousness which we have done because you have none to present to a holy God. A thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That's what Isaiah the prophet said. And then he melted before him, before God. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. You know what mercy is? It's getting what you don't deserve. Justice is getting what you do deserve. God satisfied his justice and mercy in sending forth his son. Jesus took the punishment. You receive the mercy. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, 
That's not baptismal water. That's the work of the Spirit and the renewing of the Holy of the Holy Ghost. You could translate it this way: by the washing of regeneration. That little preposition "and" is the Greek word "kai," which can is often translated "even." Even so, you could translate it this way: by the washing of regeneration, even the renewing of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. I love John five twenty four. John at times is you know is, is just the pool in which a child can wade. Jesus said in John 5, 24, mostly, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word. How many times did Jesus say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But you know what people do? <laughs> they do the same thing that, that Israel in the Old Testament did when the prophets were sent to them. They plugged their ears. They refused to hear. They refused to hear the clear word of God spoken by the prophets in their own tongue. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. So it's not just, it's not enough to just hear the word of God preached. You have to act upon it. You have to believe. And the one who hears has passed from death to life. Jesus said in John 5:25, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. Listen, Jesus has the power to raise the dead. He demonstrated that on three occasions. Like what old J. Vernon McGee used to say, you have a lot of faith healers today, but I don't see too many faith raisers. Right? Lazarus, come forth. And he did, wrapped in his grave clothes. Pretty startling. And that's why the Pharisees and the religious leadership in Israel at that point made a firm determination that he has to go. He has to die. Hug their ears, harden their heart like Pharaoh's. And as a result, when people harden their heart, I've said it oftentimes, God gives a judicial blindness to them. They reject the clear truth, so then God hardens their heart, and Jesus begins to speak in parables not to reveal the truth to them that they rejected, but to conceal it from them and to, to expound it privately to his disciples. Oh, it's a dangerous thing to harden your heart to God and the Spirit. Those who hear will live. Those who refuse to hear will die spiritual death. So Thomas Oden Close with this quote. He says, God's love and grace are the originating causes of salvation. The atoning death of Christ is the meritorious cause. The Spirit of God is the efficient cause.
So God's love and grace, the originating causes, the atoning death of Christ is the meritorious cause. He paid the price. The Spirit of God is the efficient cause. He brings conviction. And the Word of God is the instrumental cause. It's the means through which the Holy Spirit uses to bring conviction. Faith, faith is the conditional cause. You must believe. You must believe. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he says, the glory of God is the final cause. That's what this is all about, right? We're not here today to have a nice service, sing some songs that you know you enjoy, and have some nice fellowship afterwards. I mean, that's part of it. But we are here. We gather here every week to glorify God. And that's why we try the best we can to present to God an acceptable sacrifice of worship. And that's why we put the emphasis on the preaching of God's Word. And John MacArthur says, I'm not interested in sermonettes for Christianettes. And neither am I. It's the preaching of God's Word that will bring about life and change that life for good. Amen. Amen.